Welcome everyone to another edition of Pitchside Experts, where I'm joined once again by my colleagues in the UK, Freddie Wild and Tom Moody down in Western Australia, down under literally. And uh, so blessed that the news is that cricket is on the cusp of restarting international cricket, that is with the West Indies and Pakistan going to the UK. So I'd say uh, a mighty hello and uh, a nice brunch to Freddie Wild. Freddie, how are you? I'm good, thanks, Bish. And yeah, as you said, cricket is coming back. And um, I was beginning to think um, yesterday how much I did miss it. And I think we're nearly at the point now where um, where it's back. And, and I'm very much looking forward to that. My God, the world needs it as well. We need some form of escapism. Tom, your thoughts. Hello to you. How are things? Yeah, very well. Thanks, Bish, and good day, Freddie. Everything's uh, fine, thank you. Um, yeah, I agree with you. We've had uh, live sport uh, kick off here in Australia over the last couple of weeks, where we've had um, rugby league, we've had Australian rules football start. So let's get some cricket going, as far as I'm concerned. Okay, so today we're going to talk a lot about teams winning a away from home or the lack of winning away from home versus home records, which have brought up some interesting numbers, Freddie. Um, what are the numbers saying with uh, teams traveling abroad? Yeah, well, essentially, we, we, we were talking about what uh, what topic to, to, to choose next for our podcast. And one of the things and one of the major trends in world cricket over the last few years has been how away teams have really struggled um, not necessarily to win test matches, but, but they're losing a lot of test matches. And the, the headline statistic, I suppose, is between 2010 and 2020, um, away teams lost more than half of the test matches that they played. They lost 53% of tests, which is essentially the highest, the highest proportion ever in a decade, going right back to the 1870s. In fact, there were only three test matches. The percentage was higher then. But at any point in which we've played a substantial number of tests, the away team has never lost a higher proportion than they did in the most recent decade. And, and yeah, it was a, it's a key trend uh, in the world game at the moment. So I think we, we sort of decided it would be something interesting to talk about as to why that's happening. Why is it that away teams are struggling to such an extent? And I suppose just one more thing, it's important to underline. Away teams are all, always to struggle relative to home sides. Playing at home is an advantage in Test cricket. But it seems to be one that is getting larger, and, and that's what we're going to talk about today. And Tom, um, as as guys who have played the game internationally, you have coached and played internationally. How do those statistics jump out to you? Yeah, I suppose from my perspective, having had a couple of years uh, with the Sri Lankan team as coach from 2005 to 2007, we definitely had a, a theme over that period of time. And that was for us collectively to be uh, braver and uh, a lot better equipped when we traveled. Uh, Sri Lanka at home were a dangerous side at home. They had the they had the armory with the likes of Matari Muluduran, you had Chiminda Vas, you've had you know a number of good batsmen in Sangakara and Jar Wardner and Jai Sarir and so on. So at home they were very combative, but they were brave at home. So one of the things that we talked about a lot, and I felt we made some considerable progress over that uh, two-year period, was for us to be more competitive on the road. 
Um, and there was a number of aspects to that. Uh, and probably the forefront of that was more mental than anything else. To be a, a world-dominant team, and I think India found that out in recent times when they were at that number one position, although they played a lot of cricket at home, that to do it as Australia did for the recent decades, to do it as the West Indies did through the 80s and 90s, you've got to be winning away from home as well as at home. So that means you've got to bat well in varying conditions. You've got to bowl well, obviously. Fielding is an added bonus on that. So let's delve into the reasons why teams have not, Tom, what's number one on your list as to why there's that huge disparity now between winning away from home and winning at home? I think the, the number one thing that really sticks out for me is technique. I think uh, the way that test cricket is played uh, of recent times to how it was played, and I'm, I'm taking us way back sort of 30, 40 years, uh, is very different. Um, and I think the number one reason for that is the, the, the extra format that's come into our game in T20 cricket and what that has introduced. It's introduced uh, a, a huge amount of expectation around the way that batsmen play the game. We saw that through 50 over cricket, but since the last 10 to 15 years when T20 cricket has really uh, grabbed hold of the imagination of not only the players, but the public and the audience, um, it's, I think it's compromised technique. I think uh, players have adapted to that format of the game very, very well, and it's, they've produced a very good product. But what it's done is I think it has exposed the fine-tuning that's required in techniques um, for batsmen in particular. Uh, I think bowlers uh, haven't had as much of an issue adapting from the formats. And just as we've got a good stat, I suppose, to back that up, um, we spoke about how well, the, the prompt, I suppose, for this podcast was the fact that away teams are losing more than ever. The, the reason why they're losing is that they're drawing less than ever. So to just sum that up, since 1945 to, to, to the year 2000, 41% uh, of test matches were drawn. Since then, so in the 21st century and, and in the period in which uh, T20 cricket has obviously arrived, the number of test matches drawn is now down at 22%. So it's almost half the number of tests drawn. Um, and I think that ties into what Mood said um, around technique, and particularly, I suppose, you're talking about batting technique. Batsmen are, and, and very specifically, defensive techniques, I think, because they're encouraged. And we spoke about this in an earlier episode with, um, when we spoke about the difficulties in moving red to white ball. Um, white ball cricket encourages batsmen to be aggressive. And as a result, their defensive games, I think, are less robust uh, and we're seeing them less able to bat time and therefore there are more results and they are losing in when those results do happen, generally in away conditions. Well, you, you also uh, don't see as many of those old-fashioned test batsmen, um, you know, like, you, you know, famously Jeff Boycott uh, style of player that would be prepared to occupy the crease for the whole day for a return of 80 runs. And that was not seen as a problem. If anything, that was seen as a, a wonderful way to set up uh, the innings for the side. There's a lot more pressure on batsmen to, to deliver um, 
you know, at a higher run rate and there's pressure on those players. They're criticised if they're playing slowly. Well, we discussed in, in a previous podcast, Chetisha Pujara and the tribulations that he went through a couple of years ago in the Caribbean because it was felt that he wasn't scoring quickly enough. That trend of thought for India was then reversed and the series he had in Australia emphasises um, the strength of that old classical player. So we miss the Alistair Cooks uh, guys who would just bat high volume periods of time. So I do concur with that. I actually don't know how you, how, how you sort not revert to it, but how you start developing those sorts of players again if those are the issues. Well, I mean, my, my thought would be you pick more players who play less white ball cricket, and that's not necessarily a, a flat rule because you're, you're going to count yourself out of a lot of very good players then. But just looking at what England have done in the last six months or so, um, you know, Dom Sibley and Zach Crawley, two guys who really aren't particularly proficient in the white ball format. They might become that in you know in time. There are a lot of reasons, you know, financial mainly, that might might push them in that direction. But right now, their careers have developed in such a way that they've largely been Red Bull players. They've come into the top of England's order, and admittedly across a small sample size, they've looked you know they've looked more at home than guys we've tried previously in those spots. And for me, that's the the quite simplistic way of looking at it. But I, I do think it is a potential solution. Is essentially these guys who are Red Bull specialists, so to speak are likely to probably have techniques that are more capable of, of surviving at that level, I think. How does time, <clears throat> preparation time, because for me, that's a key thing. Not that we want to live our entire lives in the past, but there are some fundamental principles in terms of tours are now shorter. There are great benefits to that for players. Um, test match cricket, a lot of test matches are finishing now, which eliminating the draw has a bonus side to that as well. There's more attacking, aggressive cricket being played. Viewers and spectators love that. Uh, but I just feel that there's a drawback because there are less preparation matches on tours generally now. Um, I think that has a significant impact. Oh, there's no question about that because one, you don't have a, an opportunity to acclimatize to the conditions. Uh, you don't get the chance from a bowling perspective to get overs under your belt, get familiar with conditions, get familiar with the ball. So if you're playing in a in a place like England, for instance, where you, you're using a completely different ball to what you're used to using. So an Australian would normally use a kookaburra ball. You suddenly go to England and using a, a duke ball. And you know, as a former bowler, Bish, it's a very different uh um, object to, you know, to try to get to perform. Um, you know, some people have the preferences one against the other. So, you know, just those things from a batting point of view, it's again the, the familiar, familiarity of, of, of conditions there and getting used to the pace, getting used to what shots work and what shots don't work. So modelling your game accordingly. Um, you know, I, I just uh, looked at some previous um uh, fixtures of a tour that I was fortunate enough to be on, not play any test matches. I, I was 12th man, I think, for the whole six test matches, but an Ashes tour in 1989. <laughs> um, and I just could not believe when I looked at it to how many games we had in preparation. And it started, um, it started back May 5th, where Australia started a, a one-day game against 
a league combined side, and then they went and played at North uh, Norfolk Eleven, Duchess of Norfolk Eleven, for a one-day game. Then they played Sussex in a one-day game. Then they played the MCC in a one-day game. Then they went to Worcester and played a three-day game. Then they went to Somerset and played a three-day game. Then they went to Middlesex and played a three-day game. And then they played a one-day game against Yorkshire. And that's just the beginning of it. And then after that, they played 13 more games against counties or combined sides on top of the six test matches and the three ODIs that that tour had. So that's the, 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 the contrast to what it was to where it is now. And I, I, I recently read an article that actually Freddie uh, sent through to us um, that the last tour that India went to England, I think, what, what year was it, Freddie, 2015? I think the tour in question was the 20, uh, 2014 tour. 2014 tour, India didn't play one first-class game before that series, which which they lost 4-0. And, and so there are, there are issues around it as well. And, I, and again, Freddie is, I suppose, Mr. Fix-It in that how do we then rectify that? Because, okay, if we're talking about England, and I would draw on what Moods has said, that the West Indies... When I first went to England, it was because partly I was young. The West Indies, when they taught there, knew there will be a lot of side games um, in 1988 so that I would get experience and exposure even if I didn't play the international matches. Now, counties are very hesitant to put out their best 11s. Um, incentives were given to counties a, a few years ago to try to produce uh, good squads to play against the touring teams. So there are a lot of issues that surround that, but I do agree that when I played, if I taught, I bowled the West Indian length, for example, which was back of a length and the hard pitches that we had here in the Caribbean. And I remember struggling initially on an international tour of England in my first season of county cricket because I tried to bowl that same length. So the ability to adapt from a bowling perspective or batting perspective is so critical around those warm-up matches. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's an excellent point. And I suppose the, the reason why, it, you know, the, the, this has changed and teams play so, you know, so, so little warm-up games now compared to what they used to is obviously, you know, the schedule and, and the game as a whole has changed. And there are pressures now on boards to go and play series around the world. And that means international series that they can put on TV and make money out of. And, and as a result, um, those games that um, probably in the past or certainly in the past weren't televised and aren't as sort of the big draw games are played. You know, they're the ones that naturally fall by the wayside. And as a result, touring teams are less prepared. I think, um, you, know, to, you know, trying to find solutions is, is difficult. But one thing I do think is worth saying, I think there are two different types of preparation. There's the short term prep. And that's you know, what you guys are talking about there in terms of going and playing matches, tour matches before a series. But there's also long-term prep for players. And, and that's where I think there's scope for boards to do more and teams are doing more. And that's things such as, you know, the England Lions, for example. England often send their young players away in the winter to go and play in India against India A and, and, and those kinds of sides. And I think that that's sort of almost that level below the international bracket of players. That's the age at which maybe you can still get experience in foreign conditions. And, and whilst I, I, I don't know the answer to this, I reckon that there's probably more value long term in adapting someone's game in sending someone who is potentially a little bit younger and a bit more of an earlier stage of their development to those conditions 
and, and you know, basically forcing them to learn it at a young age. And then when they are thrown in in the deep end, you know, years later when they're playing for their international side, they're more prepared. Because ultimately, if you're, a, if you're a young player and you're, you're thrown in, you've got one or two tour games, whilst it will help, I'm sure, I think grooving that earlier in the career, sending players, you know, from a younger age, even age group cricket, and playing in India and South Africa and around the world in different conditions, that's where you can really sort of groove things into your technique that maybe will last a career rather than having to make these quick fixes suddenly before you get, you know, on, on a tour. I think that, that sounds a lot more difficult to me. So, yeah, I mean, we're not going to see a return to the days gone by where you see, you know, multiple tour games just because the schedule won't allow it. I think what you know, the emphasis is on boards to manage their young talent well and to send them, you know, on those tours when they're younger and before they're playing for the international side. How, how does that then match up with the numbers then? Because you're telling me that in the 2010s, there's a, a bigger, a huge disparity in the, the outcomes of winning away from home. But there seem to be so many more A-tours and Lions tours in the last 10, 15 years, but yet still the gap is growing. Well, it's a good, that's a good question. I mean, there are, there are lots of factors at play. Um, I think that the, the rise of Lions tours and A tours in particular has come probably in the last four or five years, in which case we might begin to see benefits now, perhaps. Um, but, you know, there are lots of different factors at play. That, you know, we've already spoken about um, declining technique or defensive techniques. I think, you know, something we'll also touch on shortly as well as conditions. I think in some parts of the world, they've become more extreme. So there are lots of different reasons as to why this has happened. Um, and boards, I think, are, are right to invest time and money in sending these players away um, and, and in coaches as well um, to try and basically better prepare these players for alien conditions. Yeah, I think that's you're spot on there, and that's definitely happening. But unfortunately, there's a there's a there's a disparity between cricket boards uh, across uh, across mm. our game. There, there are cricket boards that can afford to be sending their develop, you know, their emerging players, and spend a, a you know a huge huge penny on them going to various different environments to to gather that experience you're talking about, which I I think is invaluable. Um, you know, West Indies, for instance, Bish. You know, they, they you know, that they, they don't have the same sort of financial clout as a lot of other uh, boards to be able to experience that. So they're, you know, they're relying very much on their own domestic setup. They're relying on also the franchise cricket in the CPL to to expose their talent and to give them a, a, a something that's a little bit more diverse and challenging. So it is very different. Uh, the one thing that that I think has been a significant change over a period of time, and, I, and that period of time I'm talking sort of 20 years, and that is how county cricket has had a, a huge influence on the development of players historically. You go back 50 years, and county cricket was the finishing school for overseas players. Every county would have an overseas player. There was a period where counties would have two overseas players. So that's a huge number of high quality players from around the world. And it, it, it was very select. It wasn't very, it wasn't uh, biased in its selection. There was a number of West Indian players that played in the, in the county setup. There's a number of Australians. There was a number of South Africans and, 
and uh, more Pakistan players, I think, than Indian players, but still they had both of them. I know Ravi Shastri, for instance, played county cricket. I certainly remember playing against Ravi Shastri when he was at Glamorgan. But that example, to me, and Bish, you're very well qualified as well to talk about this. To me, that is the best experience and finishing school out of all the opportunities that were out there to to complete you as a cricketer. And you, you just read and hear former players talk about their experiences in county cricket and how that had a huge impact on their development as players. So England would help finish them and the rest of the cricketing world would benefit and therefore your standards of the game would be higher. That's not available as uh, as it was back in the day, so to speak. Yeah, not in the not in the same volume, isn't it? Uh, you still hear um, of players, individuals like Pujara, etc., um, trying to get a county stint. <clears throat> um, Ishan Sharma and what it did for him, Zahir Khan before him, Freddie, when England were very egalitarian in their outlook of, of polishing off so many cricketers. Um, and, and yes, my own experience was, as I said before, of understanding length. Um, even my batting improved minimally. Uh, during my stint in county cricket. <laughs> yes, it did. Minus Shock minutely. Um, yeah, county cricket gifted me uh, a first-class hundred, which I wasn't sure I was good enough to have, actually. Um, so, yeah, there are great benefits to that. And, of course, that isn't as available anymore for different reasons. So, yeah, I think that's a great point, Moons. I, 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 I agree broadly with what you're saying. I think that there are still, you know, as you, Bish, you're right to mention, there are still a few players who have come and played over here. Um, you mentioned Pajara, Ashwin as well, was someone who played at Worcester. Um, you, overseas players do occasionally get contracts with county teams. It just it does seem to happen uh, slightly less often now for, for various reasons. And you, and you touched on one point you made there about England's sort of egalitarian outlook. And you have, you know, essentially that that is a really important point there because England... I think I think at times they were actually accused of the fact, or, or um, criticism was levelled at them because essentially they were giving the opposition players the opportunity to improve themselves. Whereas you don't see that um, elsewhere in the world really so much. England players occasionally go and play abroad. Um, Indian players don't go anywhere, um, but bus England. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I think you saw Mason Crane played. It was I think possibly the first English player to play in the Sheffield Shield, and obviously it's a very different system over there with only six teams. There are fewer spots to go by, but if there, I do think there is an element of England sort of thinking, well, you know, if, if these guys come over here, then we should be having the opportunity to as well. And, and you know, that, that is a legitimate outlook. Just one point as well I'd make, make as well is that I think there are benefits to the English game of having those players come yeah. too. So that shouldn't be discounted. So Pajara and Ashwin and coming over and playing helps English players too. So that's important to, to remember. Yeah, that's the point I was going to make uh, too, Freddie, is that they're, they're, it works both ways, that uh, that situation. It's a bit like what we've talked about in previous episodes around franchise cricket and the, the enormous benefit that the hosts of those franchise tournaments, whether it be the IPL or the CPL or the Big Bash, whoever it may be, benefit enormously with quality overseas players being around the domestic players. And that certainly would be the case in in England, the other, the other point that I'd like to make, it wasn't just your your international players like your Pajaras and your Ishan Sharmas and the, and 
you know, the others that we have mentioned. It's it's the players that that are high-quality first-class cricketers in other parts of the world that are on the cusp of playing international cricket. Mike Hussey, for instance, scored a, a load of rounds, runs in county cricket before he started playing test cricket because he was a late bloomer in test cricket. But it, now, with the way that the rules are, you have to have played international cricket recently before you can get a county contact. So the Mike Husseys of the world in this generation would not be able to play county cricket. So two people are missing out. Hussey had a huge influence uh, at the counties that he, he performed at, but also Hussey benefited enormously because it kept his dream alive. So it was, a, it was a quid pro quo situation. It wasn't as some people would have you believe that the overseas player coming in was the, the only beneficiary of the system. I'm, I'm really happy to, to hear that balance come out and revise history because I think we're in an era where history needs some revision. Um, the challenges, Tom, and, and, and again, you coached internationally in Sri Lanka, as well as having coached in England, where you played at Worcester. We've often talked from a batting perspective, and I think Graham Swan talked about the fact that when, if you go to Australia from England, you have to deal with the extra bounce, with your technique honed in a certain way to cope with your home conditions, going from the high bounce to the low bounce of a subcontinent and vice versa. That challenge of adjusting technique from a batting perspective. Speak to me a little bit about that. Yeah, well, it's an enormous change for, for players that aren't familiar with that dramatic change. So your, your subcontinent players that generally play on surfaces that bounce, uh, you know, no higher than the knee roll, um, are masters of the game around, uh, you know, that pace and bounce. Um and once they get thrown out of their comfort zone, they, they don't have a base to fall back on. So, you know, one thing that uh, that, that is important is, one, it, being prepared to experience the difference and challenge yourself. But there's, there's a mental hurdle before a technical hurdle. You know, mentally, you need to be brave enough to look yourself in the mirror and say that I'm prepared to take myself out of the comfort zone to expand my game and to challenge myself to be better prepared when I'm coming up against some of you know the you know the the, the challenges that I might face in Australia for instance so you know if it's the short ball you know that's not a particularly comfortable practice session if you're really being challenged with a short ball. So it, it, I think there's the technical side of it, but I think more importantly, it's accepting that you're prepared to do it. And the, the best that I came across in my experience in Sri Lanka was Kumar Sangakkara. His, his ability to take on and embrace the, the, the challenge of the difference was quite phenomenal. And his results reflected that you know he he became a master you know in his own in his own um uh, backyard but once he traveled he also became a force uh, but i think that was as much mental as it was technical 
I think, you know, Bish, what you described there about you know, the, the, the sort of the, the huge differences in, in playing a ball, you know, a short ball that's rising up towards your head, towards in, in Asia, it's scuttling low. Or, you know, these fundamental, the, the fundamental reason why away teams struggle, not only now, but throughout history, has been the, the difference in condition. That, that is, you know, that, that's the key point, I think, to get here. And, you know, a lot of what we've spoken about prior to now has been around players trying to adapt whether that be through better preparation, better techniques, picking more Red Bull specialists. Um, but one thing we've seen in the last sort of five, six, seven years or so um, has been those conditions have become more extreme. Um, in Australia and in New Zealand, I think we're seeing the ball. Well, this is data that we've got from, from ball tracking providers at CrickViz. The ball is swinging more um, in New Zealand and Australia. In England and South Africa, it's seeming more. In England in particular, seem now is extraordinary the amount that it moves off the pitch um and then in in um in bangladesh and in sri lanka the ball is spinning a, a considerable amount more than it used to as well so what we're seeing and i think this is possibly a reaction to the fact that teams are losing away from home because they're losing away they're thinking well we've got to win at home so we start preparing more extreme conditions to almost protect yourself so it's like you know sri lanka are preparing these wickets that are turning square we're going to prepare these green seamers or england are preparing green seamers we're going to start preparing um you know fast bouncy pitches down under and teams are almost it's a, a perpetuating cycle i think where teams are becoming or conditions are becoming more difficult and all of the problems we've spoken or all of the issues and difficulties and challenges with playing away from home are being accentuated by these conditions becoming becoming more extreme and it's making the challenge even greater than it was before and at a time when as mood said at the, at the top techniques are aren't particularly good and another really important point we're in an era where there's a lot of very good bowlers very good bowlers so for all of you know, a number of things are coming together. Excellent bowling, slightly poor techniques, difficult conditions, and it's making the challenge of winning away even greater. I just wonder then, just throwing this out to the side, uh, out of pure self-interest, with the West Indies now in a biosecure environment for a lot longer than they would normally have gone for a tour. Pakistan will probably go through the same thing for the foreseeable future touring teams will. Whether that will sort of aid these teams in having to practice and live in this environment for weeks before the first game, I know that there aren't going to be the warm-up games. Whether somehow the unfortunate situation we find ourselves in will actually aid touring teams. I think you mentioned no warm-up games. I think a very important point is that there will be warm-up games into squad warm-up games is what's going to be happening. So England are going to be playing a game in their very large 55-man squad. I think they'll pick two sides within that. And the West Indies, I think, will play one um, amongst each other. Now, Australia did that um, not, not too long ago. And they said, the Australian players said, that that warm-up match, the inter-squad game, was as competitive warm-up match as they'd ever played. And that was because a lot of the players who were in the sort of second team, so to speak, were pushing for selection in the first team. Um, and it became, you know, rather than, you know, as we said, counties often these days put out quite weak games, weak sides rather, they use these matches against touring sides as an opportunity to rest players. Um, these inter-squad games... I don't know how feasible they are long term. And that goes back to Moose's excellent point about different boards having different amount of resources to spend. But in this instance, I think you're right, Bish, that the West Indies will be pretty well prepared for this series. They're going to play a high intensity game, I imagine, amongst each other, whereby some players are going to be pushing for spots and wanting to say, yeah, hang on, I can get into this team here. 
Um, and I think it'll be very interesting to see how they do cope, having had a little bit longer, not only in the country, but then, as I said, playing that inter-squad game. I think we, we're going to learn a lot. I, I think we're going to learn a lot of things or be reminded of a lot of things over the coming months in England. So if there's that huge disparity now, that widening chasm between success away from home, how does that then lead us into the idea of the toss? Well, so conditions becoming more extreme has placed a greater emphasis on the toss, uh, I think. The toss is obviously always very important in, in cricket, and particularly in test cricket. Um, but the statistics that I spoke about at the top are around how away teams now are losing uh, uh, around half their test matches, or did in the last decade. If they lose the toss, that figure jumps up higher to around 60%. Um, and in, in particular, in New Zealand, uh, India and Australia... If you're an away team and you lose the toss in the last decade or so, your chance of, I think one test match has been won, 2012, uh, England won a test match having lost the toss in India. It's very, very rare now to be an away team and win a game having lost the toss in those countries. Um, And it places huge importance on that. And that also, I suppose, leads into what you're saying. Where does that leave the toss? And are there things maybe we can do to try and remedy this? Well, isn't it uh, right, Freddie, that county cricket have trialled this for a couple of years and I think they've uh, they've withdrawn this trial, but uh, where the visiting team had a choice to 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 elect what to do and if, if they didn't want to take that choice, a normal toss would take place. Now, I'm not sure why they haven't done that, but I quite like the idea of that because then you don't have the farcical situation where you have a touring side turning up to an absolute green top uh, that has been prepared to suit you know their home home side or a turning top um, that uh, is going to challenge the visiting side so to to me it sort of takes that huge uh, disadvantage away from a touring side well I think we can we can research that but one of the things the added benefits of I suppose parity is that a couple of teams are realizing now and have realized in the last decade that to be able to have a balanced team, India have suddenly in the last 10, 15 years been able to produce more fast bowlers to complement their spinners. Uh, Their batsmen have become better at playing the bouncing ball. So at home, they are able to if they want home advantage to prepare something that tailors to both halves of their bowling unit. Uh, The West Indies have recently reconfigured their pitches, Freddie, and you gave us brilliant numbers as to how fast bowling has gone through a renaissance in the last, I think, two or three seasons, generally in many countries. So, you know, is that something that we can look at? Are we seriously going to deliberate that, that's something the ICC or someone can look at, that that advantage of the toss can be looked at more deeply. Well, well yeah, as Mood said, they did trial it here, over here in England between 2016 and last season. And I think there were initially some encouraging signs from it, but over the course of four years, not much difference has essentially been found. I, 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 I'd quite like to have seen them stick with it maybe for a bit longer, but essentially they've now decided they're going to um, enact harsher pe- penalties on teams if substandard pitches are produced. But 
you're right. And I think why this is relevant um, is because I think it, ta- you know, it goes back to the, you know, we talk about test cricket being under threat. We've discussed it in previous podcasts from, from short form cricket and, you know, test cricket is, is challenged, I suppose, to produce a product that people enjoy and, and want to continue to watch. And the dominance of home sides or extreme dominance of home sides is, a, is I think, developing into a problem. I don't think it's quite existed for or it's to such an extreme yet where it's definitely a problem. But I think we're having to start talking about it. And this is one, you know, do, thinking about what we do with the toss is certainly one one option to, to remedy. It. And we've spoken other, you know, about things that home boards can do in terms of improving their players. But the ICC, too, may have uh, an obligation to try and think about how they can protect and promote the test game. Well, one thing they could do, Freddie, is uh, consider, um, you know, keeping the toss as it is. But if they deem uh, through the umpire and the match referee that the, the surface that the test has been played on is uh, not as the of, of the standard of the of the expectation of the ICC standards, that they don't lose the test match. The test match plays out, and that statistic, everything stays as is. But they don't get get the points on the test championship table. So they lose their their climb towards playing in the ultimate in test championship. So if that's something they're keen to continue to promote and I feel that's an important way to continue to, to uh, promote test cricket, well, that's a nice way to sort of, you know, kick the, uh, the home side into touch. I, w- I, wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't envy the match referee or the man who has to make that decision. Um, yeah, we get an independent, you know, independent uh, security and everything else that's required. <laughs> just one no, was... thought I've, I've got here, actually, around um, conditions. And, and this is something that came up um, recently because England, when they've gone to Australia um, and New Zealand have, have appeared particularly toothless, um, we talk about conditions becoming more extreme and, and the ball is a factor there. Obviously, England uses a Dukes ball. Um, that's also used in West Indies. The Kookaburra is used everywhere by India, which I think uses an SG. Now, there are differences there in, in, in conditions which you can replicate. Now, you can't make a Chelmsford pitch like a Mumbai day five pitch. But in England, they can start using a Kookaburra ball. They can use an SG ball. And I would, I would certainly be um, interested in, in, in the potential benefits of maybe across domestic seasons, first class domestic seasons, um, different boards using slightly different balls in those conditions, just so that those bowlers become and batsmen become more familiar with dealing with them. Well, well, Australia's done that over the last two yeah, years yeah, in Sheffield Shield right, cricket. Yeah. So you got I your mean, ten, you got your ten games in Sheffield Shield cricket. The first five of those games is played with a Kookaburra, and the last five is played with a Duke ball. So they've done that the last two years, uh, purely in preparation of the recent Ashes tour, but also I think. They wanted to see how it performed in Australian conditions. And certainly the feedback I've had back from the players, they feel it's a better contest, the Duke ball, than the Kookaburra ball, uh, which doesn't surprise me at all. So, you know, they're, I suppose, putting the manufacturers under pressure to, if they want to maintain monopoly in the market, well, produce a good cricket ball that produces a good contest. And Australia, you know, Australia retained the Ashes last time around, you know, and obviously not attributing that entirely to using the Duke's ball, but I think it's something that all balls should consider, particularly ahead of a big tour like that. It just makes sense for me. I just want to end on this note, though, and just spelling off of it, and I'm sure the ICC, where they have a lot of great thinkers who are going through all these permutations, the homogenous nature... In Australia, I think a couple of years ago, there was Tom and 
you will remember this. The similarity in the nature of the pitches had become a bugbear. If we look internationally, should we, though I can hear some fans saying, well, we do like the difference when you go to the subcontinent to play, the challenge is different. When you go to the West Indies, the challenge has its difference. To Australia, Perth, Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, different types of conditions showcasing and requiring different skills, same in the UK, in Pakistan, wherever. That homogeneity, which we don't want the same thing everywhere we go, do we? No, definitely not. Um, and I, I think even within your own country, it's nice to have uh, the, the, the personality and different characteristics across uh, your own cricketing landscape. And I think uh, one of the challenges that the ground staff have this day and age is with drop-in pitches, making sure that these drop-in pitches at various stadiums have got their own personality and they're not all you know, coming out and looking the same and be behaving the same. And I think uh, probably in Australia, because um, I know that uh, better than any other place, I think the Adelaide Oval have done that the best. When they converted from the traditional Adelaide surface to a drop-in surface, the ground staff there have done it as well as anyone with regards to that they've managed to keep a real personality on that on that surface, which, as you say, Bish, it... it requires different uh, skill sets to be able to get the outcome you want, whether it be wickets or runs. Yeah, I suppose cricket, we want differences in life. People are fighting for equality. Thank you very much, Freddie. Thank you very much, Tom. We're looking forward to next month when international cricket will begin. And of course, the West Indies, once again, will be at the forefront of everything against Freddie's England. So thank you very much for listening. And uh, we look forward to your company for our next podcast. Mm -hmm.